Hello, welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason, from the City of Melbourne Libraries. Joining me is a special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. David Astle is a crossword maker in The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, as well as a full-time word nerd. He's the evening's host on ABC Radio Melbourne. His latest book, Rewording the Brain, investigates recent neural studies into puzzle solving, seeing how twisty clues can empower our brains. Some of David's other books include A Kid's Dictionary, 101 Weird Words and Three Fakes, The Mind Tripping Riddledom, and The Crosswords Checkered History Clutopia, plus the manual come memoir Puzzled. If you've got a telly, you can catch his regular word spots on News Breakfast, or you may also recall his face and very flamboyant shirt collection from the SBS cult show Letters and Numbers, back in the olden days when it was on telly before 2012. Welcome to your Desert uh, Island, David. Uh, thanks a lot, Natalie. How was your bio? Uh, it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of, it was largely familiar to me. Oh, good. That's good. A life well lived <laughs> thus far. Um, thank you for wearing a flamboyant shirt for me today. Uh, yeah, I'm on, on brand yes. today. Yes. No, I'm very, 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 very thrilled. Uh, do you still have all of those shirts? I do, although I'd, I haven't inherited that many from the show, but it certainly triggered my uh, appetite for keeping with the paisley and the uh, and, and the strong pastels. Did they dress you for that show? Oh, my goodness, really? Yeah, they did because I had before then very much kind of T-shirt and plain shirt aesthetic, and they said, look, fine, you're in a parrot. <laughs> I've embraced it ever since. And you did. Parrots are my favourite birds. Are they yours? Yeah, I do love parrots. I love the fact that uh, galahs in particular uh, mm. seem so monogamous. I like the fact that galahs remind me of the 1980s so strongly. It's that grey and pink. That's my nana. They just have that grey cardigan with a pink vest. Isn't it? But isn't it heartwarming? <laughs> like it's a feeling of, the, like the 80s were great yeah. in parts, but those colours are just so vibrant. Um, my question for you is, um, how do you continue to expand your vocabulary when you already know all the words? Well, I don't know all the words in English, and so there's still that uh, gnawing need to keep pushing out and finding more abstruse, beautiful rarities. But every time I travel, every time I open my eyes to a new language, I just get so hungry for words like, I don't know, say... Ringo is Japanese for apple, or uh, words like um, in jugad, which is a Hindi word for that positive energy that you need with a little bit of inside knowledge and the right wiggle of the wrist that can solve any problem. I mean, how would you not want to keep, you know, hungering for words like that? What's the word for that in English? Is there a single word that sums that up? Um, I. It's a mixture of. It's not what you know, it's whose you know. Mm. And it's also a bit of, um, he's just got that knack of getting out of trouble or fixing a problem. But that's the beauty of so many foreign words that uh, we have no English equivalent. So that's why English tends to be such a hospitable language, continually accommodating all these wonderful imports. Back to Ringo. Mm. Because he was in the Beatles yeah. and their label was Apple. You see? Yeah, those sorts of things just delight me. They give me these little kind of brain explosions that are a beautiful, um, a beautiful experience. Do you see words visually? I do. I mean, yeah. I know that's, that sounds like a silly question, but... Yeah, one sees visually, I guess, but uh, words <laughs> to me are Literally. very much... No, very much their shapes mm. and their sounds 
and they're parcels of meaning, but they have a physical presence in my mind. That I can sense the curvature of the letters and uh, you know the hollows of their of um, their apertures, and and I often conceive and perceive uh, words in lowercase for the same reason because the letters have more personality that way. I do my crosswords in lowercase. Is that correct? Well, there's nothing. Nothing wrong about that. It's the only thing is that it could be misleading. I think an I could look like an L and you could be thrown by that for, uh, you know, a, an annoying couple of minutes. That's the only reason that I would go for block letters. But perfectly fine. It's kind of fun when you get a, a long answer to write it, it kind of cursively across the uh, across the grid. I don't cursive because I don't like crossing the lines. I've got to stay <laughs> in the boxes. But when you're on a big weekend away yeah. with 10 of your friends and you start the crossword before anyone else gets up and then someone else has a go and then it becomes a collaborative event, suddenly you've got four sets of handwriting, uppercase, lowercase. I kind of love what a jump, although it kind of makes the fur on the back of my neck stand up, I like the jumble of... Um, I like the jumble of minds. I see that as it's, you know, my vocabulary is growing. I'm yeah. an avid reader, mm-hmm. but I also feel like it's kind of fixed in some ways. Whereas the vocabulary of my friends and the people that I work with and the people that I know is different to mine. And so doing a crossword alone is a perfectly fine experience, but being able to kind of collaborate and share makes me think, it kind of expands my vocabulary in that way. It's a lovely, it's a lovely idea. It's that idea of the wisdom of crowds that somewhere in the room is the answer, mm. and it might be the fusion of minds, or it could be asking the right question to the right mind. But having everyone working collaboratively on this one unified document—that's yeah, pretty exciting. It's an exciting model, and it's this. Um, you mentioned rewording the brain. This idea of pro-social behaviour, it's called, where everyone is encouraging everyone else towards a solution, is a really um, dynamic and successful model of uh, problem solving. I'm really sorry to confess, but I've never finished one of your crosswords by myself. <laughs> I always. I bet you did. the crowd can, though. But if yes, you, if yes. you get the crossword, put it there on that breakfast table. Yes. Between your 10 friends, it will get a, it will be solved. Without a doubt. But I've never been able to do it on my own, which once m- makes me want to keep doing your crosswords. I have... Uh, I do believe that I've kind of played this cryptic Cupid for so many couples because my <laughs> crosswords are very much a collaborative challenge. And uh, in fact, quite seriously or quite joyously, I, you know, I have had uh, lots of couples get in touch to say, thanks to your crossword, you know, I'm now in this really wonderful relationship. And in fact, even met a couple in Geelong Library who came up and introduced their beautiful daughter and said, you know, you have played a small part in this, uh, in this young <laughs> this young child. And and their name is DA. <laughs> we pronounce we spell it D double That's her name. Why not? Yeah. Um is it true um last crossword question, sorry, mm-hmm. I know we are here to talk about books, but um is it true that they get harder across the week? That's certainly true in uh the New York Times. Yes. And they try and do a similar thing in The Guardian. But uh with the Herald, because there have been several days that were allocated to setters in the misty past, there's uh, a little bit of inconsistency in that rule. I would say that Thursday, NS, Nancy Siptain, is relatively merciful with lots of anagrams and, and not a bad place to start. 
and then suddenly there's a very steep jump for Friday. For Fridays, that's you, young man. <laughs> yeah, so that is me. But then uh, I do think that Friday is the right day for a tough crossword because it's the end of a working week. You've yes. got the weekend to look forward to, so you can have a few drinks, have a have a crack, have that kind of collaborative chit chat and troubleshooting. What are you drinking at breakfast with your crossword? What are you suggesting? Maybe that's why I can't finish it. I'm drinking tea. Oh, hmm. uh, yeah. And DS, is that Monday? No, DS is uh, oh, Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, David yes. Sutton. And uh, LR is, uh, he's the new kid on the block, uh, Liam Runnels, and a really exciting new setter. And he's Monday, but uh, sporadically at this stage, but hopefully we'll find a, a permanent day for, for Liam. And let's not talk about whoever does Sunday. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> Sunday is just ridiculous. Shall we talk about reading Yes? Yeah, let's do that. All right. Could you please reveal the title and author of book one? My first book is Flaubert's Parrot by Julian Barnes. Uh, this book opened my eyes to the potential of what a book can be. Not that I had read just orthodox books before then, but when I discovered this book as uh, in my early 20s, I just felt exhilarated and slapped in this really awakening manner, thinking you don't have to follow these regimented rules of what a novel is. And the book follows, it's a kind of, it, it, it's a pseudo biography of Gustave Flaubert a writer that I had no idea about. And to be honest, I didn't know anything about Julian Barnes either. So wow. it was a double discovery. Yeah, and a, an amazing immersion into both of their worlds. What a great way to, to start. Yeah, and I think it was probably the, one of the first of, um, I think Barnes had written one or two books before then that they weren't particularly prominent. And this was the book that really launched his name and his career. Uh, and so, you know, Bear in mind that he would have written this in his 20s, so it was a relatively young Barnes, the beginning of his own mm. meteoric arc. And as for Flaubert, I am deeply indebted for Barnes introducing me to the master that, uh, you know, is that French author. And the fact that Emma Bovary did not make the top three is, a, is, is an indictment, I'll be honest. Well, she did invariably because she's in this book. She is in this book, so though I felt as though I was cheating because I've essentially smuggled uh, you know, <laughs> two books in one. <laughs> Madame Bovary in this book. But of all uh, the things to smuggle on your desert island, books are not contraband. <laughs> you can bring as many as you like. I forced you to pick three. You um, did, yeah. My deepest apologies, but I thought you did quite well. Well, I also thought, in the spirit of the desert island challenge, that um, it would be good possibly to introduce listeners to books that they may not have heard about. And I do know that Madame Bovary has been discovered, and many people rightly rhapsodise about that stupendous novel. Mm. But um, it, this is a really beautiful kaleidoscopic approach to the same book, not just Bovary's work, but Barnes' work as well, mm. and how mischievous and transgressive he is in this book. So he channels this um, quite a dull, uh, obsessive um, working class. Well, he's a, he's a dentist, I think. Oh, he's a retired doctor. A retired doctor. And there you a go. widow. <laughs> gets around on boats and eats cheese and <laughs> waxes lyrical about parrots. Nothing to get too excited about with Jeffrey Braithwaite. And <laughs> so he's almost an anti-hero. And that's also an interesting and beautiful idea too. Yes. And so he decides to spend his, um, his superannuation and his ample spare time <laughs> by meandering about... Um, uh, France in search of this stuffed parrot 
because there was a mention of a parrot in one of Flaubert's stories. Yep. And he wants to ascertain the veracity of this parrot. So he's essentially looking for either a literary prop or a metaphor. And right away, that to me is a completely terra incognita. <laughs> You've got an anti-hero who's kind of trapped inside a cryptobiography, who's wandering around France, so it's a travelogue as well, yep. looking for a stuffed bird because he's got some inkling it might be significant. And all the time, he's continually sampling Flaubert's work, Flaubert's letters, Flaubert's sensibilities. So it is this wonderful vehicle to encounter the mind and mastery of Flaubert as much as the ludic, beautiful, playful nature of Barnes himself. And the parrot. <laughs> I'd have to say, in fact, this is a parody. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. It's a parody of the literary novel because the um, what's lovely about this book is the parrot is becomes a kind of mystery in itself. Yes. So it's it, my favourite books tend to uh, push genre. I this one I'd have to say is both a it's a you know it's a biography, it's a travel book, it's a mystery, uh, it's a book about ideas and language, it's a compendium of Flaubert's works. I mean, it's you cannot put this in a neat shoebox, and that excites me. And consequently, I've gone on to not just devour Barnes, but another writer who plays similar games, another Englishman, is Jeff Dyer, mm. um, who I'd have to say that uh, out of sheer rage does a similar thing uh, with the life of uh, D.H. Lawrence. Mm. But Barnes, uh, I mean, the fact that one, you know, one chapter just becomes this A to Z of, yes. he just turns it into a dictionary. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in fact, he w used to work uh, for the Oxford Dictionary Barnes. And then he also uh, just has this pastiche of letters from Flaubert. Everything is layered and collaged, and yet there's also this really strong through line of Geoffrey's peregrinations. Geoffrey. Geoffrey. <laughs> I oh, know. You see one of your Desert Island dinner party guests? No, he That's definitely wouldn't be. That's a different podcast. <laughs> no, he would, not, he would not be. He's well, not coming along. He'd be fine for a natter in a park, but really he'd be quite dull, I think, as a dinner guest. But he still takes you on this kind of, I mean, he takes you with him through the whole book. At no point are you thinking, Jeffrey, you're dull as dishwater, I can't go on. No, but he's, I suppose he is uh, ennobling himself by such a, uh, a quixotic pursuit because I think mm. at, at root he is quite a dull, a dull character. But he, in fact, there's this line uh, from Flaubert himself that he described, and bear in mind that Flaubert was, um, uh, he, he was typified as being the, the, the father or the procreator of realism. Mm. And what he likened realism to, this is Flaubert, is the caking of cow dung around temples to capture the, um, the contour and uh, scope of reality. So basically spreading your shit around to capture story and character. And then I reckon this, and this is Flaubert's words, but it was Barnes who helped me introduce, um, introduce me to these words. And this is Flaubert at his nadir, at his desperate, you know, ditch of writer's block where he was really having tr trouble writing um, Madame Bovary. Mm. And he says, language is like a cracked kettle on which we beat our tunes to, for bears to dance to, while all the time we long to move the stars to pity. 
And that quote, thanks to Barnes from Flaubert, has just reverberated in my chest for 30 years. Wow. Yeah, I just love that quote because we want words to do ethereal, impossible things. And we keep striving. But in the end, they serve us well. But uh, we have these astonishing visions in our heads or grandiose ambitions. And words try, we try our best to use words to help realise them. And we always fall short. And even the masters, you know, uh, of, of any persuasion recognise that but still keep striving. And we are so grateful that they do. Yeah, it's so true. Thoroughly grateful. I guess the the premise of the book is, is it possible to understand somebody's creative output in a more deep, a more deep and meaningful way if we examine their life and the way they lived and, and how they lived? Do we learn anything from that um, that helps us more deeply understand the, the art that they made and the way we connect with their art? Well, without treading on too many toes, that certainly has come to the fore in recent years with um, particular uh, musicians Mm -hmm. where we may have great difficulties with the aspects of their life and then there's their work and how do we reconcile the two? And even those writers that we admire, returning to the literary mode, there's this wonderful quote from um, Lucian Freud, the... um, the painter, who said, when you fall in love, you are wise to not know too much more. Because <laughs> when you fall in love, you have high expectations and kind of rapturous impressions. Yes. And then when you meet the girl's parents or find out what their Facebook uh, bio is all about, then always that, there's that kind of um, disappointment and I suppose that's the other thing that um, Jeffrey comes to realise. Yes. He is smitten by Flaubert on the page. Yes. And Flaubert the person, there is an element of cow dung and, <laughs> you know, mortality about the man that he's kind of disappointed in. But it's an interesting puzzle, isn't it, this yes. idea of the art and the artist. Yeah. And it is, again, one of the great pursuits of writers and and sleuths to try and connect the two. How was it that Rimbaud created that poem when he was lost in Africa? How was it that uh, uh, Robert Lowell, who was going through this incredible period of uh, depression, could write such an ele- you know, elegiac poem? So all these wonderful quandaries that we come across as, as lovers of art, sometimes it's a little bit risky to find out too much about the artist. Yeah. Context isn't always everything. No. No. In fact, the best works often stand outside the context, you know. Yeah. It's like, how, how did Sylvia Plath write that? Yes. Despite what she was going through, because of what she was going through. That's right. You look at the experience, you look at the manifestation of that experience, and you try and work out how the gossamer ties connect. Mm. The threads that bind. Um, shall we discuss and delve into book two? Are you yeah. ready to reveal the title and author for us? Let's do that. My second book is Ivo Andrich, The Bridge on the Drina. This was perhaps a maverick choice because it's a writer I know not a whole lot about and it's the only book I've read of this writer. He did win the Nobel Prize um, during the 70s. 1961. 61. Yep. And 
when I was travelling uh, about 18 months ago through the Balkans, through Bosnia, Serbia, uh, through Hungary, I felt this need to decipher what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important point to, to share because there is something about reading a book while you are essentially travelling through the narrative or the landscape that that book depicts yep. that has this um, kind of transcendent effect. And this book, which spans four centuries, and it's just written in this sort of sweeping manifest destiny kind of fashion, captures the idea of a bridge that connects two parts of the Balkans that at various times were divided, were under different em, you know, empires, but it's the bridge that is the metaphor for human endeavour mm-hmm. and human connection. And it's really the biography of a bridge that, that sits remarkable? in the heart of the Balkan Empire. And it's historical fiction. It is historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And also what's incredible is that Andrich himself is something of a bridge because he's beloved by all in the Balkans. And, you know, I've got to be careful because I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, from that uh, part of the world and there may be some who disagree with that contention. However, those that I met while travelling, when they saw that I was reading this, whatever their persuasion, were very uh, exuberant about the book because he was born in Bosnia, northern Bosnia. Yes, while He's, it was under um, uh, Hungarian rule? Is yes, that right? it was. Or Austrian no, rule? No, it was. It was occupied, uh, essentially. It was occupied, and really... He was born in 1892. And then, to bear in mind, and then spent his uh, many of his kind of most fertile years uh, in Belgrade, you know, in Serbia. That's so, right. you know, his career spans the Balkans. And in between, he was a diplomat, and so spent his time representing, you know, what was then Yugoslavia. Uh, and the other thing I've got to add about this book is not only did it make me understand a little more, a lot more about the, you know, multiple layers and complexities of the of sort of Balkan history, uh, it, but also uh, it's one of those rare occasions where I went and visited his writing room in Belgrade. Wow. And I, th- and I think that is the experience that threw this book into the top three. I have never been before... I don't think, maybe Norman Lindsay. I've never been to a writer's actual creative space before. Someone who is, you know, I've, uh, you know, like a friend, sure, I've, I know where they, they write out in the spare bedroom. But I'm talking about a, a world writer. Yes. And it was quite something to walk into the space that has barely changed. And there are all these dusty uh, dictionaries, all these books of uh, European folklore, of European history, mm. Yiddish phrases. Uh, I just felt like I was in a church. And this book is the, you know, I suppose the st- getting fancy, the, the transubstantiation of that spiritual place. You did a Jeffrey Braithwaite via Julian mm. Barnes. I did. About Flaubert. It's you a really found, good... yeah, you found the context. It's, you've made me see that. That's that's a great observation. And so, so Evo was uh, Yugoslavia's ambassador to Germany, as mm. you mentioned earlier, from 1939 to 1941, which were the early years of World War Two. Yeah. In 1941, he was arrested by the Germans. 
sent to um, German-occupied Belgrade and confined to a friend's apartment, which was essentially house arrest. Between 1941 and the end of the war in 1945, he wrote three novels in that room that you visited. The Bridge on the Drina was the first one to be published Mm. and was met with widespread acclaim. It was published in 1941. He wrote it between 41 and 45 while he was... Uh, while he was living in that friend's apartment in in Belgrade. And it was another, I don't know, my math isn't great, I'm better with words, Mm. 16 or so years later when he won that Nobel Peace Prize for literature Um, and his his work sort of became subject to international acclaim at that point. It was very... And then I have read, and again, this is not a part of the world Mm. that I'm particularly familiar with, but I have read that it took a very long time for... um, former parts of Yugoslavia to recognise him as as he's now known as Yugoslavia's greatest writer. He's the only writer from that region to ever have won a Nobel Prize for Literature. That's remarkable. It is remarkable and it also gives us all, I hope, this incredible sense of um, potential mm. uh, in our lives as readers because there are these universes available to us through these champions of voice Mm -hmm. in some of the most, you know, subjugated or, you know, terror-stricken places. I mean, the Balkans was a complete nightmare for many years. And he captures the nightmare as much as he captures the, you know, the the humanity of those areas. And he does it with this uh, inevitable velocity. Like, it's 400 years and it's rolled into 400 pages. Yeah. and, And it's just, you get concussion reading about these characters. And don't think for a minute that this is all about, you know, generals moving, you know, plastic soldiers on tables and and, um, political um, sort of uh, intrigues alone. It is about a village. It Mm. is about um, the madam of the the brothel. It is about the small boy who drowns. It is about the, uh, the coming of the gypsies. It is about the disputes in the bars. But all this is through the lens of history. Mm. And we see regulations come and go. We see house numbers come. It's in the same way that uh, Marquez opened up South America. This book opens up the Balkans, as great books do. And I've never read another book like it. Mm. Certainly not a book that spans 500 years where the central character is the bridge because, as you say, people come and go. Um, and I've never read a book about that part of the world, and I feel like it's certainly opened my mind. This is what great reading does, mm. particularly fiction, when you, you go into it thinking, okay, well, this is not a textbook. I don't have to take notes. There's no essay. There's no quiz <laughs> at the end. Yeah. I'm reading this for pleasure. I'm reading this for pure enjoyment and for whatever it is that I learn along the way, and it's a, it's a remarkable book, and, and it's a surprising book. I, uh, I'm a great... Um scribbler in books, I have to confess. Not I mean, library books. Good no, grief. I do it very lightly with a pencil and then rub it all out. <laughs> What's the point? Yeah. No, no, I do. But I am a great uh, scribbler in books because for two reasons. One is I might see a uh, a word that I want to collect for a crossword. Okay. So I look at a word like short fuse and think, mm, gosh, there's almost tofu in that. Oh, no, hang on. There's... Uh, the, I, I, I look for... I notice things in words that I collect. But the other thing I do is I collect quotes and I collect moments in books and I think, wow, that is just so revealing. I suddenly, mm. And when I started this book and I was travelling, you know, through Belgrade, through, into uh, Sarajevo, reading this sort of on trains and buses, for the first hundred pages I hardly touched it. It was almost as though I, 
I felt like I was reading it for edification, you know, like medicine. Mm. But then I just became part of the village. And everything after that, from about the page 90 mark through to, you know, 480, scribble all over it because I was starting to lament and love and resent all these characters. And it became much more than just something one should read. It became a really rewarding reading experience. And there's so much wisdom in this book. And one of my favourite lines is, in fact, it's going to kind of echo through the third book I've chosen for, uh, for the Desert Island. He talks about the coming of war. And, of course, there's many opportunities where war comes along in this um, conflicted space. In 400 years, my yeah. goodness. <laughs> and, the, uh, and this idea that uh, in the swirling current, this is a quote, among men, uh, we, who passed from dumb animal fear to suicidal enthusiasm. And you just see a nation being whipped into war, and that is the, that is the progression from fear to this, you know, kind of absolute suicidal, homicidal rage and conviction. And the other thing that I reckon this just, I still think is one of the wisest quotes I've come across in, in my reading life. All that was cruel and grasping was concealed by the dignity and glitter of traditional forms. And when I see the likes of Australian Day rituals or when I see the likes of mm. Catholic sacrament, I think, Oh my God, Andrich knew about this. He, he, he understands the, the beast inside, inside humankind. And he tells us all in this incredible book that has a bridge at the centre of it. That he grew up near, that, yeah. he, that he witnessed for his life until he had that, I guess, sort of exile and mm -hmm. forced um, solitude where he was able to reflect on all of that. And write it down. Yeah, I mean... I, Articulate. I, I think the, if, if anyone's out there with a, a big literary project that they've been meaning to write, the idea of uh, a kind of house arrest must be very appealing. <laughs> I mean... Well, do it off your own volition. Careful what you, you wish want, for. You don't want anyone to impose it on you. <laughs> no. but, um, and I should add too, Natalie, the one thing that I... Uh, not only did I visit the, the space mm -hmm. where he wrote it, but I also visited the bridge. And uh, to just... And it was right at uh, dusk. And uh, I was just there alone with the, um, uh, we had like a, um, a, a driver and my wife, the three of us were just there and we just stood on this bridge while the, um, I think there was some kind of um, night sparrows that were flying overhead, the, the water was rushing beneath us and I felt like we were standing on, a, on, a, on an empty stage of, of world history and it still gives me goosebumps to think about that moment. It's an enormous bridge too. Yeah. It, have, it has 11 arches, just to kind of paint the picture of. We're not talking about a little wooden bridge. It's a traffic bridge. Mm -hmm. um, it's got two uh, side parts ha about halfway down. It, it uh, extends to the left and the right where you can stand and gather further out over the water. Yeah, the capia. The capia, that's right, K-A-P-I-R. Yeah, many words that you learn from this book mm. and from many languages. Yes, and uh, it's written in translation. It was never written originally in English. No, and the other thing too, it's, you describe it really well, is that it's, um, I mean, it's world heritage for that reason because mm. it's not just a, a book that is, um, you know, it's steeped in history, it's steeped in literature. And it is a very, very significant uh, touchstone of Balkan unity. And what a, what a remarkable idea to think... In fact, 
you know what endures us the, what endures us are the masterpieces of, of architecture or uh, so why not focus on that and leave the you know frivolity of mankind behind and, and use that as the uh, the kind of standing point for the for the novel it was built in the 16th century mm. and the number of lives lost constructing that bridge was enormous and yet it endures as you say yeah um, and he knows his engineering too so it kind of you learn right? about bridge building <laughs> that's right. <laughs> In a very sexy way, like he, does, the pace of the book, despite the fact that it is such a, a vast amount of time, is is really brisk, and uh, yeah, look, it is. Mm. It, you do need to be quite deliberate about reading it. It's not something you can read uh, nonchalantly. In fact, you're best to be swept up in it. But it is uh, immensely rewarding. Mm. Thank you for choosing it. Thank you for mm. bringing it to my attention. Shall we zip over the bridge and on to <laughs> onto the third book that you've brought in for us today? My third book is Draw Your Weapons by Sarah Sintilis. And this book, it was a rare book because in my uh, latest incarnation as a radio host, I have been obliged to read two or three books a week. And that might be just in quite, um, you know, skim fashion to get a sense of what a topic might encompass. Or you may look at a, a novel and do your best to read as much as you can before you meet the author. Well, this was applied to, uh, this was a book that uh, applied in that, uh, in that sense. Uh, I was going to interview Sarah as part of um, the Bendigo Writers Festival last year. And I was consequently reading this book in the train going up to Bendigo only, you know, only eight months ago. And I just started reading it and I could not believe how brilliant it is. Mm -hmm. It is an astonishing book. Sarah herself was on the cusp of graduating as a divinity, uh, you know, divinity uh, graduate with honours. And it was at the same time that the Abu Ghraib photos appeared. And when she saw not just the crucifixion trope in what was in front of her, but kind of started pondering about this publication and propagation of violent images and kind of violent tropes, she thought, to hell with divinity. I'm going to study photography. And, I'm, and then through photography, she started the art of art and expression with violence very much at the centre of it. And this book is unlocks just how complicit we are as human beings in this dialect of violence through our language, through our images, through our rituals, through our conversations, through our idiom. It is... It, it is uh, all pervasive, and it's a book like this, which took 10 years to write, and no, no wonder why, that so eloquently and so imaginatively exposes all this complicity that uh, you would never realise that you were part of. So when I was reading about... I loved this book. Absolutely loved mm. this book. It sort of broke me apart in many ways. So when, so in my research for this book, I saw it described as a, a literary collage style of writing. 
because she jumps from paragraph to paragraph and she's got different threads and she's working with sort of two or three ideas at a time or two or three conversations that she's having with someone or one her reflections on one photograph and a conversation with a separate person on a different topic and yet one paragraph to the other she sort of jumps between the two um and what it's making me think of right now, so this is really off the top of my head, mm-hmm. is how some of that is in the other two books that you've chosen as well. Um, in the Barnes, where he jumps from the dictionary, so the A to Z, but there's also a chapter where he goes from year to year. There's a little chronology right. in there. Um, and certainly the bridge, as we're spanning 400 years, we're jumping from thing to thing. Um, I wonder, did you put this thread together? Do, is this a style of writing that you it's, are it's drawn a, to? It's a really observant um, remark. And I'm not shocked by it because one of the um, things that I hold very dear in my puzzle work, as much as in my general kind of cognitive life, is I have this un- uncanny knack, jugard, of uh, connecting things. Mm. Um, it's something that you need to do to create puzzles. Um, you need to, you know, for a, a misdirection, you need to get people looking at one thing when really you're talking about something, something else. Something else, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's a, you know really shrewd uh, remark, and I think there might be something through my reading life mm. that I really thrill to when I see writers doing a kind of a dazzling equivalent with ideas and the themes. And th- I mean, what you touched on is it really it's worth dwelling upon a little further. The Sarah Centillis, um her m- sort of modus operandi is like very few other writers I've ever come across, I'm really struggling to think of others who I might put forward. Peter Hanke, possibly the Austrian writer, who kind of writes a lot of these pastiche works. And this is, uh, this really is, and she herself, Sarah, has said that in an interview when I did chat with her, that the fact that it did take 10 years to write, one reason being is that she had written this as a more formal book of essays mm. and then found it too much, too turgid, uh, too uh, sort of airless. And then she had this ingenious idea that if she just snipped things up and created a little bit of space within the essays and put them in an order that has this covert logic to it, what it ends up doing, and, and everything is just kind of little bite-sized brains, you know, kind of brain grabs. It creates this space that you, as the reader, you fall into, and it's and it just so eloquently mm-hmm. captures her argument. If I talk about we need to bite the bullet and do something, your brain is thinking just unconsciously about guns. And she creates that space where your subconscious, unconscious, where your flitting mind also stumbles into. And I just think not only is this structure absolutely, you know, mercurial, but it is also a really crafty piece of engineering that illustrates your point so powerfully. Oh, it's, it's just an absolutely stunning piece of work. I found myself um, like physically reacting to the book. So I'd be reading it and I'd read a paragraph and I'd have to put the book away from me. So I would have to sort of physically move it so my brain could sort of catch up. Like I found my, like I could hear the cogs, t- everyone could hear the cogs turning mm. on the tram as I was reading this. So I found myself, it's a book that you think about 
And it's a book that you, sometimes I wasn't sure what I was thinking about. When she made a point, as gently as she does with a feather, I still found myself thinking, this is enormous. Natalie, what are you thinking? Like, what do we think about this? Like the collective we, the royal we, (laughs) me and all my me's. What am I thinking about this? And, And what should I be thinking about this? And why have I never thought about this before? It's a really good, I, I, there is this um, maxim when it comes to playwriting and story writing too, that you don't want the reader to get ahead of the story. Mm-hmm. So you want to continually dance just out of reach of the reader or the, the viewer. And she does this really nimbly. Yeah. And so you are left with those great uncertainties and those lacunae in your brain and you start to fill it. And what, you've, what, what often you, you turn to is essentially uh, evidence and an illustration of her argument. I mean, to to give you an example, uh, there's some stuff here that is in this book, and she will touch on um, this idea that a Roland Barthes uh, quote, which is just so perfect, is if you really want to see something, you look at it and then you close your eyes. So that quote really is the cornerstone of this book because we have consumed and been assaulted by so much via language and image and rhetoric and ritual that embraces and propagates violence, that all we need to do is to turn away and not think about it, and we think about it. Yep. She talks about the idea that that detainees are ghosts, they're off the book. She talks about torture chambers being named by soldiers as the house of fun. She talks about the fine film of human ash that is found inside an Auschwitz violin. She talks about a keywork monkey that her grandfather had, which eerily captures a story that he was involved in where they actually court-martialed a monkey. And all these stories are really just jaw-droppingly powerful stories, but they are centrally arranged around this kind of magnetic core, this central question of how complicit are we in the furtherance of violence in this world? And they're done in such a lucid, compelling, and yet also enigmatic way. I just, how could something be lucid and enigmatic? She does it. And then what do we do about it, our complicitness? She she points it out to us. She doesn't tell us what she's doing. She doesn't tell us what we ought to do. But then how do you walk away from a book like this and not feel changed? And And the other question I have is how do you walk away from a book like this? This is not – I feel like it's a – absolutely brilliant desert island pick because it is a book that you want to delve back into and revisit because there's more in there I've missed a whole bunch of it there's a whole bunch I can't process I'm sure there's more when I rethink about the same thing I'll come up with a different way of processing it or a different way of confronting that yeah and I think that's why it is such a brilliant book because even just to revisit it as I was doing in the tram coming in just to flick through and looking at all those scribbles I thought oh, I I think I've been sitting on that idea without even realizing it. Mm. And this and I was involved recently at a um a uh, a conference of uh, psychiatrists who are dealing with schizophrenia 
And one of the central issues around mental health is what is the conceptual metaphor at the centre of treatment, at the centre of the discourse around, around that condition. And in the case of schizophrenia, you know, the, the fallacy is this idea of the split mind, when in fact it's completely, you know, uh, untrue, that it's a far more complex and, uh, and multi-layered um, affliction than it is this idea of a kind of binary you know, mm. flip side of the brain. And yet it's the, the art of the, the psychiatrists, it's the art of us all, in, the challenge in us all, to identify what is the framing piece of language. What's the, what is the, cons- the kind of root idea that is influencing, that is shaping the language that addresses the issue? And this book does this in a really brilliant fashion. She identifies just how central violence is as a conceptual metaphor for our public discourse and our way of thinking and dreaming. It's just at the bottom of things and we should, as best we can, be aware of it. That's a huge step. And then the next challenge is how do we change it? I need a lie down. Mm. Um, could you show me your scribbles in the book? Can you flick through and show me? Yeah. Oh, my God, they're in pen. Yeah, well, that's my copy. I know. It's okay. Yeah. I, I didn't see a library. Okay, so you're <laughs> circling words. Yeah, all the time. And yeah. you're um, you're writing in the margins. Is that yeah. a number? Are you writing numbers yeah, as well? TQ for technique. Okay, uh, so you've got, got your own shorthand. Yeah, so okay. I admire writer's technique. I think that's great technique. Yeah. Uh, That's something I want to check out later. So a little hashtag is a check. I want to check that out. Um, You've got ellipses. What do they mean? Ellipses. Well, that's the that's a Rebecca Solnit, who is my other favourite writer in terms of um, just sort of cultural uh, criticism. There's a quote from Rebecca Solnit in this book which I really love. Um, But no, it's just I'm continually scribbling. It is it is kind of one of my uh, you know uh, lifelong vices. I well, you've switched to pencil. Is this a different day? <laughs> I think it must Look have been. Look at that, you've got stars. I've got stars. Well, I just want to represent this for people who are listening so they know because it's about astronomy. Well, it is. But bear in mind that I wrote, uh, this was scribbled in a train. I was about to interview, you know, uh, Sarah that evening or maybe a day later. So I wanted to uh, get as many uh, pointers, markers, quotes down and then I would um, kind of coalesce them all into this one kind of master sheet that I would put on my lap. And then when I met Sarah, I had little quotes and tangents that I was really keen to explore. And and to be honest, when you meet any author, it's always you want to do, um, you know, pay them the respect of uh, reflecting their work well. But I think I was probably even a little bit fanstruck by Sarah because I was, like few other books that I've read for research, completely, completely wowed. I thought this... This is a modern masterpiece. And what's she like as a chatter? She is so charming and modest and sweet and you 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 know it almost masks the ferocity and depth of intellect. I'm not saying that she she comes across as being ditzy though that's the last thing she is, but she's certainly the most genial, modest um person that you'd hope to meet. There's no surprise that she was, you know, going to pursue uh, a life in the church because she has a really Mm. uh, calm, spiritual centre to her. But her mind is is like this, um, you know, absolute, uh, you know, quicksilver uh, blaze of, of, you know, of um, both 
Well, there's rage in there, mm. but it's also it's like a seeking of um, there's a kind of philosophical uh, hunger that's mm. in her that, that is in her too, that is uh, you know really kind of um, exciting to, to to meet and to to have her articulate. Yeah, and I think that's evident in if you if you think very kind of top level about her progression from someone in a seminary who was ready to become a priest and a, 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 you know to practice religion to have seen two photographs that completely undid her understanding of religion, culture, torture, mass media, how we represent ourselves, what stories we want to tell. And then by examining those photos, going on to be a professor of art and now describing herself as a complete agnostic. Like that's a life well lived and that's a life that that is very self-reflective, that is very... And and I don't mean critical. How do I mean critical, David? Help me. Well, you know what? Can I put it this way? Yes, please. Any way you like. (laughs) When you meet uh, people, one of the interview uh, questions that always comes up is, you know, was there a turning point in your life or when would you identify there was a turning point? And I'd have to say that this was, her life was zigging and then she zagged. Um, And like few other writers, people that I've ever met, and it was all due due to that Abu Ghraib thing. And as she's almost been continually trying to filter and attune the static that she felt in that moment when she was affronted by that image and realised everything that it represented. Um, and she spent, and really she spent the next part of her career trying to fathom and extirpate it, uproot it, identify it and eradicate it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a monumental mission, but she's made a, a, a staggering uh, start that should really compel us all to um, be woke, mm. be aware, and uh, start to take care in our language, and be realize and kind of be uh, aware of what we're filter feeding, often just so passively. Have you read any of her other books? I have not. Neither I have, not. have I. Maybe so, we should explore mm. that. Um, what are you reading at the moment? Uh, it's a blend of things. In fact, I'm getting home Simon Barnes' book. And Simon Barnes, people would associate uh, with cricket. Uh, he writes cricket for The Guardian. But uh, he wrote a book, and its title eludes me at the moment, but it's um, it's looking at every level of life there is. And it's uh, set out in about 100 chapters, and it might go from flatworms to elephants to nematodes to tarpeers. And it's a really lovely book because every chapter is about four pages. And when I get home from the radio, uh, I just occupy a different animal's head. And they're quite comical, but they're also erudite and inquisitive. And um, so I'm reading that. I've just finished uh, reading uh, the Rebecca Solnit, the um, the field guide to being lost. That's the right. Yep, mm, yep. Which is a, a, a wonderful book. And I... The most impressive thing I've read in the last um, six months would have to be, though, the Sebastian Smee essay called Net Loss, which was the quarterly essay um, a couple of issues back. And that, in, in for all lovers of literature, he and Smee is a very well-read and resourceful um, essayist. He puts together this crisp and original argument using literature as his uh, case for the prosecution showing what we have lost due to social media because our inner lives, which fiction captures so well, is being crudely externalised and diminished by having to fit into the strictures 
and the the kind of frivolous churn of social media. It, it's an extraordinary piece of uh, essay writing and also acquainted me with um, some of the lesser known stories of Chekhov, Bello, uh, Iris Murdoch is in there, Alice Munro. He's just pulling from the shelves of Western literature and using it as an illustration of the damage that Facebook's doing. It's it's a brilliant piece of writing. Is this the current quarterly essay? No, the current one is uh, Rebecca Huntley, which again is a really fantastic essay about the um, uh, Australian political uh, landscape. But the Sami one, uh, as soon as I read it, I followed him <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> yes, he is on that Twitter. That is the opposite of <laughs> yeah, what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I try and use it for good. Of course. And uh, I want to read his, uh, I think it's called The Art of Rivalry, uh, which is all about how um, creative spirits often thrive by having a rival in the same generation and uh, looks at um, you know some really interesting visual artists and how they spurred each other on yeah. to, to greatness. Yeah, rivalry can do that too, mm, can't it? It can, yeah. Just like, you know, Karen Holmes in the spelling bee. I can't believe she beat me <laughs> all back, way back then in, in grade three. We promised not to talk about that. I thought we weren't going to talk <laughs> Karen, about Karen, if you're that. still listening, I thought there was a D in privilege. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like there should be though. Come on. <laughs> really, there should be. Yes. Um, David, thank you kindly for joining me on your desert island today and talking to me about your favourite books. It's been a pleasure, even though it was an absolute folly trying to reduce my book uh, love of life to uh, to three. But I really, it's a it's a wonderful challenge, though. You can always order some more books from the library. We'll do some interlibrary loans and send them to you on the island. Promise I'll use a pencil. Excellent. Yes, and we'll send you an eraser as well. You can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all of the books we've discussed on our Goodreads page. You can find that on our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au. Just look for the Read page. I'd also love to hear about your Desert Island books. Tweet at Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books and let me know the books that you simply cannot live without. You can download previous Desert Island Books episodes in your favourite podcasting app, SoundCloud, iTunes. Simply search for Melbourne Library Service. Happy reading!